Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of this episode of Art of the Hustle, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now, AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM Security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash smart. You're listening to the Art of the Hustle, the podcast that breaks down how the world's most fascinating and successful people have hustled their way to the top. I'm Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit, a thought leadership community and ideas festival. And one of the great joys of my work is getting to meet and learn from the best and brightest across disciplines, hearing their wisdom and understanding their ways of seeing. And if you're going to do a podcast, you might as well talk to the guy that knows the most about podcasts. Our guest today is the entrepreneurial Forrest Gump. Tim Ferriss is a world champion tango dancer, martial artist, venture capitalist, startup investor, author and hosts a tremendous podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. Please welcome my friend and big brother, Tim Ferriss. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. Um, you are a old dear friend and mentor. Is that true? <laughs> I would consider that true. Well, mentor part you can assess, but I've tried my best to help a wayward young lad you have, you on have. his way to on his way to world dominance. Oh, how kind, how kind. I thought, you know, why don't we start from the beginning? You know, you are now a boss, and you weren't always, and we all started somewhere. So uh, I was hoping you'd tell us a little bit about your childhood. I grew up as a townie on Long Island, out of the very East End. There is a storied place known for khakis and tennis and champagne flutes called the Hamptons, mm. which if you're if you're not on that side of the tracks, usually more involves mullets, and or at least it did when I was growing up, and. Uh, and uh, really having an axe to grind against the so-called city people who come out from Manhattan. So I grew up as a townie on the end of Long Island and was born premature, had a lot of health problems Really, when I was younger. I uh, was very, very small growing up until about sixth grade. So I was bullied very badly. That doesn't make me unique. I think that's very common, but uh, ended up, I think, retreating into 
books and academics and so on because that was a safer place. I ended up focusing a lot on school because it was one of the few outlets that I had. And then later on, wrestling. I would say that my parents had a huge impact on reading in part because they said we always have a budget for books and they did not have budget for many other things. I mean, I grew up eating TV dinners and chicken legs bought at a discount and so on. So they did not have money for say the new bike or the BB gun or fill in the blank, but they, they would always tell me and my brother, if you really want a book, we have a budget for books. Do you think that if you had an easier childhood that you would have been an entrepreneur? I don't know. This is one of this is one of those questions that uh, is difficult to answer. As far as being an entrepreneur or not, uh, I, I think I was, uh, on one hand, romanced by infomercials because I had horrible, horrible insomnia uh, for thirty plus years. And my mom's theory is that that's because I was in the ICU for so long as a preemie, where the lights are on all night long. But I would stay up until god-awful hours, two, three, four in the morning. And what's on television in the early 80s at that hour, you're talking infomercials of every possible type. So I became fascinated by these crazy shows where you'd have the pocket fishermen and spray on hair and Tony Robbins and everything in between. Uh, I was really most interested in why on earth people would pick up the phone and buy these things. And they seemed to be working because they were run constantly. Mm. And so I think that was that was part of what piqued my curiosity and how things worked outside of the jobs that I saw around me, which were my friend's parents who were fishermen and landscapers and plumbers. But I'm curious. So as you're growing up, I know that you raise money from friends and family and grandparents, you found your boarding school and got them to send you there. But how did you even ID that in the first place? Like, I've never heard of a high school kid ever putting those things together for themselves. I was very lucky. There was one friend of mine uh, at the time, David, he went to St. Paul's. Teachers were trying to recommend that I look at other options outside of this high school, but I didn't know where to start. And David came back for a school vacation at one point because his parents were still in the area. And he told me all about St. Paul's. And St. Paul's sounded like this alien utopia in a way, because they had 10 different languages to choose from in terms of second languages. They had tiny class sizes. They had gigantic, beautiful structures around campus and uh, this incredible history with uh, famous alumni. And it just, it was so far outside of my life experience, yet at the same time, really alluring, but extremely expensive. And uh, fortunately, as you mentioned, you know, there are a handful of scholarships that were cobbled together and also my extended family, especially my grandparents, were willing to help. St. Paul's was really an inflection point because number one, it made me really, really work hard and the expectations of you were sky high. Uh, and there were classes six days a week. You had seated meal, meaning Dead Poets Society, coat and tie, multiple times per week, chapel, 
even though it's considered a non-denominational school, people of all religions attend. You had chapel with the sign uh, with uh, announcements and uh, singing and so on almost every morning. Mandatory sports. Some of your classes, I think it was called eighth period at the time. I'm not sure if this is still the case, but they'd end at like 6.30 p.m. where you might start at 8 a.m. And it just beat the living hell out of me. Uh, so it, it prepared me perfectly for much what would be perceived as very tough environments like Princeton, depending on the track that you take. So all of those things would not have been available to me, would not have even come on my radar if my friend Dave had not been the one person from the entire high school I knew to go to a boarding school who I happened to see at home on Long Island during a school vacation. So lots and lots of serendipity. You know, so many things are illustrated through that, but you know, a real entrepreneurial trait that's evidenced through that story is like, here's high school age Tim and you saw an investment in yourself and then you went and you fundraised. You got your family and your friends and whatever scholarships were available. Did you feel a sense of pressure that you had to provide an ROI to your investors when you were doing this? Or is that something that came natural to you? I definitely felt a pressure not to disappoint uh, everyone who had helped to make it a reality for sure. Uh, and I think that that is a good thing. I mean, <laughs> it can, it can, anything in its extreme becomes its opposite in some way, or many things that are helpful in excess become toxic. But if, if you don't feel any karmic debt to anyone, you're probably a sociopath. So I think that I did, I did feel a responsibility to the people who had supported me. Yeah, I think I, I was very fortunate to have adults around me like uh, Reverend Richard Greenleaf at St. Paul's even, who really believed in me and encouraged me to try things even I thought wouldn't work. And a perfect example of that, you take a place like St. Paul's, right? St. Paul's is supposed to be, at least if you were to ask them, you know, cultivating the leaders of tomorrow. And yet they still suffer from all sorts of problems like any, any institution. One of them was that my guidance counselor uh, told me I had no chance of getting into Princeton and that I should revise my targets because the the format was come in with three lists of schools your a list which is your your reach schools you'd really like to get into b the schools that you'd be happy to go to that you think you can get into and then c your safety schools and uh the guidance counselor encouraged me to take my safety schools and make them my A schools because he said, look, you transferred here. You didn't get X, Y, and Z credits to transfer. You spent a year in Japan. None of that transferred. You are really uh, setting yourself up for failure by even trying to apply to a place like Princeton or Stanford. And what I realized after the fact, so I, I only had one meeting with him because then thankfully I had Reverend Greenleaf as an advisor who said, actually, Tim, you should apply. Like, what's the downside, right? What's the worst that could happen? And this is something that's guided me my whole life. This, what's the worst that can happen? Why not try it? And uh, I realized only after the fact that the guidance counselor is incentivized by what metric? The percentage of his advisees or her advisees that get into their first choice school. So what is easier? Helping people to get into their first choice school, which requires a lot of work, or convincing those students to take safeties and turn them into their first choice schools. The second. We're talking about, you know, now what is 
definitely rich people shit, right? Private schools, Stanford, Princeton. You grew up, you know, without wealth in that sense. So what does wealth mean to you now and what did it mean to you before you had it? Uh, wealth meant to me early on uh, freedom in a sense because I saw how a scarcity of money uh, I think very often, and certainly the perceived scarcity of money on the part of my parents colored almost all of our decisions, the things we could or could not do, the things that caused emotions to run high in the house. Money tied into a lot of this, uh, or lack of money. And for me, I, I never wanted to find myself or maybe a future family in that situation. So money to me meant certainly all the stuff that some young dude would think about, fun toys and all of that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, which is fine, all the creature comforts and all that stuff. But it meant freedom to do what I wanted to do and to spend my time on the things that I wanted to spend my time on. Um, you know, I remember when we met, you had written the four-hour work week and before for our work week, you had written, you, you had founded uh, a company um, that you had worked a lot more than four hours a week in building and developing and growing. And, you know, the four hour work week was a very influential book on myself and my partners at Summit. Please, for once and for all, help, help us understand it. The wax on wax off of doing less to accomplish more. The objective for everyone is not to work exactly four hours per week or less. It's to maximize your per hour output. This is what relates then to the 80-20 principle. The 80-20 principle, for those who are not familiar, in very simple terms, would mean that in almost every activity, in almost every environment, let's just say whether that is a pea garden, which is something that Vilfredo Pareto observed, or uh, contribution to GDP, uh, you will find that a, a minority of inputs or players produce the majority of the results or outputs. And uh, that could mean, for instance, uh, and the reason it's called 80-20 is that in general, say 20% of your customers will produce 80% of your profit. 20% of the exercises you perform in a given training regimen are probably responsible for 80% of the performance improvements that you see in whatever sport you've chosen, and so on and so forth. So the sports nutrition company that I had founded and then later sold was massive number of hours in the beginning because you cannot do an 80-20 analysis until you've thrown a lot against the wall to see what sticks, what works and what doesn't work. You have to have a data set to analyze and to create that data set, especially for people in the early stages of building their careers, to know what you're good at, what you're terrible at, what you're mediocre at. Uh, you have to throw a lot against the wall, and that requires some upfront volume. Once you have the data, then you can parse it and you can apply 80-20, and then you can get to some, you can produce some really outsized results from very honed surgical inputs. Uh, but you need, uh, you need that data in the beginning, and that generally requires trying a lot of different things. You mentioned throwing a lot of stuff at the wall up front. And uh, I think that, you know, from the outside in, if, if, you know, the derogatory way to give you credit for what you've accomplished is that you are a generationally significant marketer, which is also true. <laughs> I learned a lot from you and how you market and how you think about it. And 
Um, but, you know, the reality is, is you are a full-on scientist. You test everything and then you retest it and then you double-bind test it. And you do that for your own use. You always have... Um, and since I've known you, whether it was for, you know, what is the best language learning platform and software, what's the best way to consume coffee, whatever, you were like your own living wire cutter. And I'm just curious, why do you do that? And has it always been a part of your nature? The analysis and the testing and all of that really came about through wrestling because one of the greatest competitive advantages you can have in amateur wrestling is the ability to cut weight and to in effect, dehydrate yourself very quickly, rehydrate yourself so that you can compete against people who are naturally much smaller than yourself. This is routine. It is part of the game. It's done in any weight class-based sport all the way up to the highest level. And in doing that, you really, if you want to do it effectively but aggressively, you need to keep track of everything. So I have uh, almost every word, well, from age, I would say 15 to 35, I have almost every workout recorded that I've ever done. So if I want to perform like I did in August of 2009, I can go back and look at the preceding 12 weeks of training and just replicate that. And with a fair degree of certainty, assuming I don't have any major injuries right now, end up where I was then looking very similar minus the hair because the hair is gone forever. But the uh, that type of analysis was really siloed to physical performance until I realized, wait a second, this type of testing can be applied to languages. It can be applied to investing in startups. It can be applied to all of these different areas of endeavor. It can be applied to split testing on the web. It's all the same thing. I mean, if you if, if we're looking at Karl Popper, we're looking at the scientific method, we're looking at all of this, it's, it's a method of thinking. Uh, so that... Is, is definitely become my default, and it was just a matter of training myself, which anybody can do. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Tim Ferriss. This message comes from Art of the Hustle sponsor, IBM. IBM is working with clients to put smart to work and bring progress to everyone. Together with IBM, experts are putting smart to work to help save species, increase crop yields, and make progress. Not just for a few of us, for all of us. Because while technology has never been smarter, smart only matters when you put it to work where it matters. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here with Tim Ferriss. As a master marketer, and that's, you know, my words, not someone else's. I'm sure they, they have better superlatives. You have said in the past that one of the questions you wish people ask more, just simply, what is marketing? So, Tim, what is marketing? For me, I can only speak for myself. I, so I think marketing and sales are, total, are very different things. I think marketing is defining your market very, very precisely. Who are you trying to sell to? If we're talking about a for-profit business. Or you're selling an idea, you're selling a donation model, you're, you're selling charity water, you're selling whatever it might be marketing. You're selling yourself to a spouse or a potential spouse. Who are you trying to reach? Who is it? What do they do? What do they read? What do they eat? What do they like? What do they dislike? What, what do they watch on Netflix? Who is this person? Exactly. And, if you, and, the, and the, the more specifically, the more, uh, the more detailed you can be in that description, the more effective and the more cost-effective all of your outreach is going to be whether it's on 
Tinder trying to find a date, or if you were trying to launch a book to become a number one New York Times bestseller, you have to think about this. And I would encourage you to think about it before you put together your product or service. It is not something that I try to think about after I have already created a product in a vacuum. So marketing for me is identifying your market. And uh, there's a great article out there called 1000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly. People can find it for free on kk.org. And if, if I could recommend only one article on marketing to anyone, that is what I would recommend. It's a 10-minute read. And uh, that is marketing. Uh, marketing number one. I would also say that because of that, or if we, if, if we operate off of that definition, you can test just about everything. Uh, and do so not necessarily only inside with, say, your employees, but in many, many different ways. So if, if I want to begin to experiment with writing a book, which is uh, one of the scarier forms of uh, content, because at least as it exists right now, if we're talking about traditional publishing, you work on a book for one to three years, you publish it, and then you have all, all of these pages, all of these dead trees walking around in the world that cannot be updated quickly. Kindle can be updated quickly, but that's a different story. And uh, as a result, this, this relatively fixed medium, you want to really have, as you put it, your branding, your message on point. So what do you do? there are many options for testing that and refining it over time. So the four-hour work week was in large part a result of dozens of, I think it would have been dozens of uh, different guest lectures given in high-tech entrepreneurship at Princeton University. I had a chance to work with a live audience to see just like a comedian working on his or her material, like what falls flat, what works, what, what works part of the time, what always gets a good response. And what do I get feedback on what do they most talk about? What do they share with their friends? I could, I could really capture all of this. Could we take $1,000 and test this? If that were a constraint, could we take $100 and test this? Could we test this for free? I'm constantly polling people on Twitter. I'm constantly testing things on the podcast that might become a chapter in a future book. I'm constantly doing this type of testing, which may not be explicitly obvious as testing, but I think of low-cost, expedient, fast testing all the time. I will try to find a handful of things that most excite me, and then I will test those for some degree of viability. But I will not just throw my hands to the sky and rely on the wisdom of the crowd to come up with what I should do with my life. That, that I've decided often results in, in misfires. Um, but I do, I do trust, trust the data, but recognize garbage in, garbage out. So if your questions are bad, you can still trust the data and then end up in a really poor place. So you have to have the right question, the right hypothesis, the right set of things to test first. Well, you're, you're really representing for cool nerds everywhere and showcasing why guys like you are taking over the world and, and men and women like yourself. Um, I'm, I, I wish I had more of those tendencies and I've brought on and supplemented myself with partners who think in that way. And so I, I, I am an extrovert. I'm an extroverted extrovert. You are an extroverted introvert. I've seen you at dinner parties. You're the best marketer in the crowd <laughs> and yet you're often very quiet and you're very reserved and you're very low key. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm 
One, you know, for just from a lifestyle perspective, I think the listeners would love to know why you choose to be low key when you could have celebrity or you could have a higher, you know, I, I guess awareness of your personality in the public. And then the other is just like for, for on that sales piece. So you describe marketing and how you define it. What advice do you have for people that are introverts um, in getting their product or ideas out in the world? I have not so much decided to be an introvert as figured out how to be an introvert and occasionally turn on extroversion to present if that is the best vehicle, say giving a TED talk or getting on stage, something like that. Uh, There are people who are recharged. They have their batteries replenished by being in crowds. I am not one of them. I find it brutally exhausting. I have done effectively no public speaking, uh, certainly very few paid public speaking engagements, which is how most authors make the the vast majority of their income. I've effectively stopped doing all of it because I find it too depleting. Uh, And uh, to your question about how introverts can get their products out to the world, if you build something truly awesome for a well-defined market, uh, ideally something very small. I know that sounds funny and maybe uh, contradict you to a lot of advice out there, but if, if, you are def- if you are designing for the early adopters, I mean, let's not forget that the first iPhone did not have copy-paste function, right? What a pain in the ass. Not everyone's going to buy that thing. So I didn't remember that. Did, yeah, design for the, for the true believers uh, in a market that ideally you understand, in a product category where you would buy something, Perhaps it's where you're currently cobbling together a really crappy solution. Build that thing. And you do not need to be an extrovert to succeed as an entrepreneur at all. There are hundreds, thousands, I'm sure millions of examples of people who are highly introverted, who are very, very successful as entrepreneurs. I mean, just go to Silicon Valley and observe the average level of social awkwardness and you will be made a believer. It's like you do not need to be Steve Jobs to be a good entrepreneur at all you can absolutely be an introvert, focus on your superpowers uh, and magnifying those instead of fixing your weaknesses and be incredibly successful as an entrepreneur. And and you have great pattern recognition for this stuff. And I, I actually think it's the same reason why you're such a you know great writer and why you're very good at determining you know what companies will work and won't. Um, you have a great ability to civilize very complex ideas and bring them down to earth and boil them down to their essence. And I think people really appreciate that in your writing and, I, and, I, and it's evidenced in your, in your startup investing. What do you think are the traits and what do you look for in companies and teams that you have ultimately invested in? Uh, I think it's Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's right-hand uh, partner, who said something along the lines of, uh, it's not it's amazing how much success you can have not by trying to be smart, but by trying to be consistently not stupid. (laughs) And, uh, I have really tried to only invest in companies whose products I could be a power user of products. I really, really needed and wanted to use whether that's say stumble upon, which ultimately didn't work out, but then led to me advising Uber because same co-founder, uh, Garrett camp, or Evernote, right, which may or may not turn out well ultimately for me, but is a product I still use every day uh, to 
uh, AngelList, very niche, right? But I'm an advisor there. Uh, you, you go down the list of companies, TaskRabbit, straight out of uh, you know four hour work week. This was on my mind. So when it back when it was run my errand, met with Leah, and then decided to become uh, you know the first advisor to TaskRabbit. You go down the list; they all make sense, right? I invested in Alibaba. Why Alibaba? Just read the four hour work week. I talk about drop shipping and manufacturing overseas. It's something that. Uh, at the time, I felt I understood and could possibly use. And uh, I really tried very hard. I didn't always succeed, but to to not play games where I didn't have an unfair advantage. And an unfair advantage doesn't have to be sophisticated. An unfair advantage could be you are obsessed with fashion or in Tokyo, therefore you are the best suited to be the CMO of a company that is importing or somehow bringing Japanese fashion ahead of the curve to early adopters in New York, Paris, and London. Great. If that's you, stick to where you have a competitive advantage, an unfair advantage. And for me, that was consumer tech where I could also add value by bringing in a lot of users quickly because of the audience I had built through the four-hour workweek. And then later, subsequent books and podcasts and so on. Um, so what do I look for? I look for a product that I can be a power user of. I also looked for entrepreneurs who I could, I would look forward to having a drink with uh, because what a lot of folks don't realize with these startups, and you certainly know this, in most of the really notable success cases, you're looking at seven to 12 years and most of them are not going to work out. So do you want to have a partner, right? A friend at the very least and uh, someone you may end up spending a lot of time with, I mean, on par with your significant other sometimes if they're really needy or going through a lot of uh, tough times or a rapid growth phase, are you willing to spend on and off seven to 12 years with this person, assuming that most of them are not going to work out? And the answer should be yes. Otherwise, you're going to have a really, really miserable slog of things. Generally, all startup ideas, all new creative ideas are pretty bad ideas. Even the great ideas are bad ideas in a sense, right? There's some misaligned, yeah. you know, uh, connections and there's some, you know, like you don't have enough perspective or ways of seeing on the problem set yet. You got to like take the warts off of your bad idea or your just basic idea and turn it in, into a great idea. Do you have a process for that? Do you, do you think about, um, how you do that going forward and stay creative as you scale? I really am trying to uh, ever more diligently disqualify ideas, give away ideas, and the ones that I just can't kill, the ones that other people can't do, plus that keep me excited enough that I just cannot get them out of my head, those are the ones that I want to focus on. The rest, I want to continue to raise the bar for so that my disqualifiers get more and more strict. Uh, in terms of creativity, uh, I think that being very good about applying constraints and a lot of constraints to your thinking and your planning and your testing and your launching is really important for creativity. Creativity does not mean freedom of all constraints. That's a disaster from what I can tell. It means having, uh, in some cases, some false constraints. It's like, oh, you have infinite budget. I'm not saying you do, but let's say you're Procter & Gamble. 
you're not going to get good ideas that way. So it's like, all right, let's say you think it's going to take six months. What if you had four weeks and this short budget, this small budget, what would you do? You're probably going to come up with some interesting ideas that way. Uh, so there are books like Edward de Bono, Lateral Thinking. There are tools like uh, Oblique Strategies by Brian Eno and one of his I partners, which, which is a card deck where you can, you can, as a thought exercise at least, apply constraints. I think creativity comes from constraints uh, in part. And uh, also untripped, un, uninterrupted long blocks of time, which you have to put in your cal- calendar and protect, let's say, three to four hour chunks in the same way that you would uh, the most important conference call or meeting that you have that quarter. Uh, and uh, the last thing I would comment on as it relates to that question uh, is I don't think about scaling very much. Uh, that word is very... It represents, I think, an, an oftentimes admirable objective if you are playing the venture-backed startup game, which can be very zero-sum, and uh, in some cases, winner-take-all. But in many, many, many other contexts, uh, I think scale or scaling is sometimes a dangerous objective uh, and can lead you astray uh, because there's always going to be, particularly if you're competitive, someone, many people who are willing to sacrifice their health, their relationships, their families to make as much money as possible, well beyond any justification they could provide. And uh, you do not want to compare yourself to those people and have that drive your desire to scale a company or get to the next level. Those are phrases that I've seen really uh, turn into landmines for people. So if, if you're trying to make money, you should have a good reason for it. What are you going to use that money for? It's not valuable by itself. It is, ex- it is used to provide psychological security, that's fine, and also to be exchanged for experiences and feelings at the end of the day, even if that's vis-a-vis a, a possession. So you know, there's a, a tool, people can just look this up. Uh, target monthly income in my last name if they go on on the blog at tim.blog and you can actually cost out what your ideal lifestyle looks like in monthly cost and I, I encourage people to do that so they don't get too mesmerized by uh, kind of cancerous uncontrolled growth um, for the sake of growth um, so I want to get stoic with you I want to know like how you how do you check yourself right now Oh man, I mean, we're all going to be dust. I mean, it's it's really the degree of self-importance and sort of self-centeredness with which I can look at the world and I think anyone can look at the world is is kind of staggering when you think about it. I mean, we're a bunch of monkeys on a rock spinning around in the universe <laughs> and uh you know, humans are just like a footnote in history uh, if if we look at the billions of years that have preceded us. So it's it's very easy to take yourself and everything you're doing really fucking seriously, but um, I think ultimately trying to leave things a little better than when you got here is is sufficient enough as an objective, and that could take the form of just one person. That could take the form of making someone's day tomorrow better because you're in line at Starbucks and you pay for the person behind you. It doesn't have to be fancy. Um, so you're the man. Uh, I want to applaud you for having a real theory of change. And that's not that common, especially for those that are entrepreneurs and have spent all their time focusing on their craft. You know, you also 
spend uh, a good amount of time in, in uh, capital uh, investing in studies at different universities. Could you tell us a little bit about the projects you're funding and uh, how they'll affect the future? It tends to be me scratching my own itch or uh, trying to address my own fears in some cases. So for instance, UCSF and the Ghazali Lab, Adam Ghazali, people should mm-hmm. check him out. He's been on my podcast looking at uh, how software can be designed to potentially reverse age-related cognitive decline. I have Alzheimer's on both sides of my family. It terrifies me, and I think it should terrify people who have it. I've funded studies, and my fans have funded studies related to treatment-resistant depression at Johns Hopkins using psilocybin, which are going very well at the moment, uh, or chronic anxiety, uh, anorexia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, smoking addiction, different types of addiction, these all may in fact be variations of the same uh, pattern of neurological activity in something called the default mode network, hyperactivity in that region. One of the things that correlates to what people experience as ego dissolution or ego death when using psychedelics is this deactivation or or downregulation of the the default mode network, which is an interrupt. It allows people to experience what it is like temporarily in some cases to not have anorexia and to look at it as an observer, to not have obsessive compulsive disorder or depression and to look at it as an observer. And that is oftentimes the reset that allows people to, after two or three sessions, we're not talking about a daily drug, we're talking about two or three, say four to six hour sessions, depending on the compound, to have persistent effects six or 12 months later. I'm also very interested in ketamine and it's used for PTSD with veterans and other people as well as depression. For people interested, I just have to give a short, real short recommendation. You can support MDMA and PTSD, among other things, through maps, maps.org. I would recommend people checking that out. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in supporting this stuff on a higher level, I'm committing seven figures to this over the next few years. It was, it was, the, it was one of the first things I did when I had uh, some, some money off the table recently with startups uh, from long ago, long, long, long ago investing. Uh, you can you can check out tim.blog forward slash science. And I'm gathering people who are interested in supporting this kind of stuff because it's the most important thing that I'm focused on right now, aside from the the health and well-being of my family and closest friends and myself. Perhaps a uh, forthcoming book, The 4-Hour Trip. Perhaps, perhaps. Although Michael Pollan did me a great service in uh, saving me the trouble. Yeah, no question. <laughs> and and wrote, a, wrote a fantastic book. I recommend it to, to absolutely... Everybody, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And if you want like a two-hour two primer that covers a lot of the bases, then you can listen to my conversation with him. Fantastic. So yeah, I, I want I want to first and foremost just thank you. I mean, it's been fantastic having you join us and I really appreciate you being a part of uh, the Art of the Hustle podcast. In closing, if we want to learn more, um, your newsletter, your podcast, please share with the listeners you know, where they can find you. Uh, would love for people to check out my podcast. It's you know, there are 300 plus million downloads now. Uh, and you can find that at tim.blog forward slash podcasts, the Tim Ferriss show. So it's, it's pretty much always on the, the, the top couple of columns on, on iTunes or anywhere else. And to have some really great folks coming up, Sam Harris, PhD, we've got Seth Godin, the CEO of Walmart, Doug McMillan, but we also have people like Stan Groff, who in his eighties, he he's administered, at this point, starting in the 70s, about 5,000 uh, LSD-assisted psychotherapy sessions. I mean, he is one of the godfathers of this entire field, and um, that'll be coming up soon. Get bad science, 
because it will inform your thinking. Even if you just read the read the chapters on how to study studies, my friend Dr. Peter Atia also has uh, some articles on how to read studies, which will inform how you think about everything. Uh, Peter Atia, A T T I A. And I would also say if if you'd like to see what I am up to, because uh, I am constantly experimenting and testing stuff and finding weird things around the world. Uh, I send out a newsletter every Friday. It's free. It's super short. My my friends and fans asked for it. It's just called Five Bullet Friday. And I send out five bullets of cool things that I found. Documentaries, apps, uh, new <laughs> types of wine, supplements, whatever. All sorts of weird stuff. Thank and, you. It was very uh, kind you, of you to offer to feature our podcast on your newsletter. <laughs> we graciously hey. accept. I have a very, very reasonable rate for you for the PS deal of the week. Uh, the uh, Yeah, I do not. That, that's actually a good point. So I do not get paid for any of the bolts I include. Occasionally, I have a deal of the week that's sponsored at the very end in the PS. But otherwise, it's nothing is paid. I have no skin in the game with any of this stuff. And uh, you can find out about that at tim.blog forward slash Friday. Um, and... That's that's pretty much it for me. If you want to say hi on Twitter at T Ferris F E R R I S S, on Instagram, I post some pretty funny stuff there too. It's at Tim Ferris with two R's and two S's. Thank you. Real real talk. You have been an incredible friend and an amazing mentor, and you've invested in us before it was cool. And you've you know brought uh, critique, uh, which is the hallmark of a true friend because they'll they'll help you grow. So uh, thank you again. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, we'll see you soon. My pleasure, man. This has been The Art of the Hustle, a collaboration between WeWork and iHeartMedia. If you like the show or have thoughts on who we should interview next, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. And if you really like the show, do us a favor and leave us a review here or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal. If you found something you love, it's worth it to not stop ever. Keep going. Keep hustling. Until next time. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.